Welcome to this bonus episode of the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. This episode is an audio recording of our March 30, 2021 online forum, COVID Vaccines Explained. In that session, Husson University Assistant Professor Elizabeth Marnack provided an overview of the different COVID vaccines and how they work. Thanks to our online forum sponsors, the Bioscience Association of Maine and the Jackson Laboratory, and media sponsor Maine Public for supporting the Maine Science Festival and these forums. One note, while this has been edited for audio, if you'd like to get the full experience of the forum, the video recording will be available on the Maine Science Festival YouTube channel. Hello and welcome to this final bonus episode, our bonus session of March, our March uh, festival events. I'm Kate Dickerson. I'm the founder and director of the Maine Science Festival. Uh, I'd like to welcome everybody who is uh, from Maine and beyond. I noticed that there's a bunch of people actually from all over the world, uh, mostly all over the country. So no pressure, Liz, just a, a little tidbit. <laughs> Um, so the Maine Science Festival, our, our whole mission is to celebrate the science and engineering and innovation and technology that happens in Maine. We usually do it in a five-day festival format where you, uh, you cannot believe how much fun you have while you're also learning about the remarkable science that happens in Maine. In this case, with the pandemic, we're doing some online. And because COVID is truly the science story of our times, our, all of our March forums have focused on some aspect of COVID-19 in Maine. This session is just a little bit different in that, as Liz will, will be, I'm sure, happy to tell us, she's not actually researching COVID, but um, has become, uh, how do I put this, super versed in understanding uh, the vaccines and how they work, and more importantly, at least as far as I'm concerned, explaining them in a way that makes sense. So before I do any more uh, babbling here, I'll just do a quick um, introduction. So Elizabeth Marnack is an assistant professor of microbiology at Husson. She has her BS in biochemistry from Connecticut, Central Connecticut State University and a PhD in genetics from Tufts University Graduate School in collaboration with the Jackson Lab, uh, which I'm assuming helped tease her to get to Maine and then got an NIH fellowship to actually get her to Maine to work at the MDI Biological Laboratory. In 2017, Liz was chosen by the Harold Alphon Foundation and the Finance Authority of Maine as an Alphon leader. And in 2019, she was chosen as an early career leader for the Genetics Society of America, where she works with them on their outreach and communication committee. So um, I have been fortunate enough to, to know Liz for a little bit now, but uh, hear her talk on this topic twice now in the last six weeks, I think. Uh, and I, besides learning something new every time, I, I assure you that if you have questions and Liz can answer them, she will. And if she can't answer them, she'll be more than happy to tell you that she can't. So please put your questions in the Q&A box. We've got uh, folks behind the scenes who are monitoring it, so hopefully we won't miss them. So Liz is gonna give us a presentation and an overview of the, of the vaccines that are out there, out and about, as they say, and then we'll dive right into Q&A. It's all yours, Liz. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And as Kate said, I don't actually research this topic, but I do have a, my bat, my PhD was actually in genetics, but my dissertation research was all focused on immunology. I use genetics to understand the immune system. So I have a lot of background in immunology, but also more importantly, I'm really passionate about making science understandable. And that's why I've kind of, since COVID has happened and people have a lot of science questions, I've tried to help make the science around COVID-19 as understandable as possible. And I'll 
put some resources at the very end. So if you want to get a hold of me to ask me further questions after this session is over, you can find me either on my website or I have a science Instagram account that you can also follow me at. So I do have a couple just general disclaimers that I want to start off with. And the first is that I have no financial ties to any vaccine or pharmaceutical companies. I am only here to help give you information to help you make an informed decision. And that means that I'm not here to give you personal medical advice. You should consult your physician if you have any specific health concerns related to vaccination or COVID-19. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump right into giving us all a brief reminder about how the immune system works, because before you can really understand how vaccines work, you kind of need to understand how the immune system works. So your immune system has three basic levels. And the first one is just a barrier level. So these are your skin, your mucous membranes. These are things that exist to help keep the pathogen, whether that be a bacteria or a virus or a fungi or, or something similar from getting inside of you. But obviously we know that those barrier methods don't always work. Sometimes you do get sick. So that is where your second line of defense kicks in. And that is called your innate immune system. And I'm going to talk more about that in a second. And then if that immune component can't kick out the infection, then you have your third line of defense, which is called your adaptive immune system. So you have your innate and your adaptive immune system. And these are cells that are, there's a whole bunch of types of cells that help carry out these functions. And your innate immune system cells are your first line of defense if a bacteria or a virus actually gets inside of you. And I like to equate these cells to your first responder. So just like a police officer, an ambulance, medics are on the scene if you get into an accident, they, these cells are the first ones on the scene if they identify that you're being infected by a bacteria or a virus. Sometimes those cells are enough. They can clear out the infection before you even know that it's there. But sometimes they're not. Sometimes you need to have some extra help. And those extra help, that comes from your adaptive immune system. And your adaptive immune system, I like to equate to the specialized cells, just like the specialized professionals you would find at a hospital if you needed further care after getting into an accident. So these cells are really amazing. And I'm going to talk more about how they function. So let's say you are exposed to the virus that causes COVID-19, and that virus is called SARS-CoV-2. If you're exposed to that, and it gets inside of you, then the first thing that happens is that your innate immune system cells see that they understand that that virus does not belong. And those innate immune cells are going to engulf it. They eat that virus. And then what they do is they digest all that virus up and they show parts of that virus on their surface as flags. And those flags warn the other immune system cells that you have an invader. And then what will happen is that your adaptive immune cells will become activated because of those flags on the surface of your innate immune cells. And then those adaptive immune cells are special cells. They can adapt to specifically target that virus. In this case, it would be SARS-CoV-2. And then the other great thing about these cells is that they can form memory cells. So what that means is that if you then get exposed to the pathogen again, those cells immediately recognize that that virus doesn't belong and can help you from either protect you from either getting sick completely or make it so you're not as sick as you were the first time that you were infected with something. And it's those memory cells that form that really are the amazing part of your immune system. Because every time you're exposed to a pathogen, your body makes those memory cells to then protect you. And that's where vaccines come in. Because 
vaccines work by helping your body make those memory cells without actually having to get infected by the real pathogen. Because we know sometimes viruses or bacteria can have really detrimental consequences that result in people having long-term health effects or dying from the infection. And vaccines will make those memory cells without you risking having to get the actual infection. So the way that vaccines work in general, and I'll talk more about the COVID-19 vaccines in particular in a little bit, is that the vaccines have a way of exposing your body to components of the pathogen and the way that they do that will vary. But what will happen is that that component of the pathogen will be injected into you as a vaccine, but it doesn't actually get you sick. But that component will cause your immune cells to see that it doesn't belong and make those memory cells without you actually going through the process of getting sick. And then those memory cells will exist and help protect you if you're then exposed to the real pathogen. And vaccines work. So this is a picture from the British Society for Immunology. And we were looking at diphtheria, pertussis, and measles cases. And you can see that after the introduction of vaccines for these diseases, the spread and the prevalence of these diseases greatly dropped. There's also things like smallpox. Smallpox used to be a huge issue, but now it's something that we never have to worry about because vaccines work. So just some general immune system points before we switch gears is that your innate immune system cells respond first. Sometimes they're not enough to get rid of the actual virus or bacteria. So then your adaptive immune um, system cells kick in and they have those specialized cells that will help clear the infection if needed. And then they'll produce those memory cells that will help protect you if you're re-exposed. And vaccines provide that protection because they make your immune cells make those memory cells without actually having to be infected by the real virus or bacteria. So now I'm going to talk more about how this all comes together to make these COVID-19 vaccines. And there's a few different types of COVID-19 vaccines. So I'm going to give you a general view of how all of them work because I want you to be able to understand how the one that you end up getting is able to work. So before I get into that, though, I want to remind you guys of the virus that causes COVID-19. I already told you that that virus is called SARS-CoV-2. And viruses are interesting because they are unable to make copies of themselves without infecting a host. That means that when a virus is infecting you, they're turning your cells into a viral making factory. And the way that SARS-CoV-2 does this is it has those little red proteins on their surface. And those are called the spike proteins. And the spike proteins can bind to a receptor on our cells. And when that happens, that allows the virus to get inside of our cells. It acts as that Trojan horse to allow the, uh, the virus to get into our cells. And then once that virus is inside of our cells, it uses our cells to make copies of itself. And that's what ends up making us sick. And then that's what ends up making us contagious so that we can then transmit the virus to other individuals. So one of the first things that happened is when scientists started to realize that this pandemic was going to be happening, that there was this new novel virus, scientists all over the world started quickly working to isolate the virus and they have isolated the virus and then sequencing its genome. And a genome is something that contains all of the directions to make a new organism. We have it in the form of our DNA. Viruses have it. Um, SARS-CoV-2 is a RNA virus. And they sequence the whole genome of SARS-CoV-2. And that's what you see represented here on this picture. So you have all of these components of the virus. So the virus isn't just the spike protein. It contains other proteins that make up that outer membrane of the virus. 
And you have all of these directions contained in the genome of SARS-CoV-2. And you need all of these directions to make the full virus. So the vaccines that we're going to be talking about today all focus on this spike protein. So they all make your body produce memory cells that will recognize this spike protein. But none of the vaccines can actually give you SARS-CoV-2 because they lack all of the other directions shown here on this picture to make the rest of the virus. They only contain that green region there that is focused on that spike protein. So there's no way that these vaccines can actually give you the virus that causes COVID-19. All right, so now I wanna make sure everyone understands what mRNA is because the first type of vaccine I'm gonna talk about are the mRNA vaccines. So I already briefly mentioned DNA and how DNA is the blueprint that makes life. And it contains all of the directions to make all of the proteins that end up making life. So we are made up of proteins. Dogs are made up of proteins. All of the living organisms are made up of proteins. And the directions to make those proteins are contained in DNA. And it has to go through an intermediate called RNA. And then the RNA is used as a template to make proteins. And if we were looking inside of a simplified version of your cells, this is what it would end up looking like. So you have a cell and inside the cell is a part of the cell called the cytoplasm. And then in the middle of the cell is a part of the cell called the nucleus. And the nucleus is where your DNA lives. And it lives in that region, it's protected there, but the proteins are made in the cytoplasm. So that means that the directions to make the protein that are on DNA have to get from the nucleus into the cytoplasm. And that's why they go through this intermediate called mRNA. Now I wanna mention that mRNA does not go backwards. mRNA is made in the nucleus and goes into the cytoplasm and it doesn't go back in to the nucleus. So one of the common concerns I see about people have about these mRNA vaccines is that they could damage your DNA. And that's not an issue because the RNA doesn't get back into the nucleus where your DNA is. So a couple points that I just want to stress about mRNA is that it's different than DNA and that it cannot damage your DNA. Cause I know that it's definitely, as I mentioned, is a definitely a common concern people have. The other thing I want to mention is that mRNA is very fragile. So your cells are always making new mRNA anytime it needs to make a new protein because the RNA gets degraded and broken up very quickly. So your body is always having to replace it. And that's why we don't really have to worry about these vaccines because the RNA that's in the vaccine isn't going to be replaced. Once it's gone, it's gone. All right. So now I'm going to generally start talking about the mRNA vaccines and the two mRNA vaccines that we have access to are called Moderna and Pfizer. And the way that they work is very similar, which is why I'm lumping them together. As I mentioned, RNA is very fragile. It's easily broken up. And what these vaccine companies ended up doing is they took the RNA sequence for just that spike protein. Again, none of the other information is there, so it can't give you the real virus. They took just the directions to make that spike protein and they enclosed it in this lipid fat bubble. Lipid is just another name for fat. And it's enclosed in that lipid fat bubble because that RNA is so fragile. Without that, the RNA would be broken up and degraded before it could actually do anything and make your immune system do anything, which would make the vaccine pointless. So the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine contains this lipid bubble and the RNA for just the spike protein. So what will end up happening is that if you get one of the RNA vaccines, Moderna or Pfizer, you'll get an injection up in your arm 
And then in your arm, you have immune cells because your immune cells circulate your whole body so that they're ready and can identify a foreign invader. And what will happen is that the innate immune cells in your area of where the vaccine occurred will recognize that that vaccine doesn't belong because it has, it's been trained to recognize those for anything that's foreign. And what will happen is that that innate immune cell will eat that lipid envelope that contains the RNA for the spike protein. And when it does that, that releases the RNA for the spike protein into the cytoplasm of your cell. And when a cell sees RNA, it knows what to do. It knows how to convert that RNA into protein. So in this case, what will end up happening is that RNA will be converted into the spike protein. But again, that RNA can't get back into your nucleus because it lacks the ability to do that. So it's not going to be near your DNA at all. It's just staying in your cytoplasm just long enough to make spike protein. That RNA will be quickly degraded. And then once that RNA is gone, your body can't make more of it because it would have been completely gone. You're only getting that vaccine that one time. And then again, later when you get your second dose. So what will end up happening is that that spike protein, some of that spike protein will be presented on the surface of your innate immune cells, like those little flags I was talking about before, and that will activate the rest of your immune system. So then the rest of your immune system will become trained to recognize that spike protein as foreign. And then what will happen is that if you're exposed to the real virus that causes COVID-19, your body will recognize that spike protein, know that it doesn't belong, and will be able to eliminate the infection before you actually get sick. All right, so now I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about two other types of vaccines. And I'm lumping Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca together because their technique is very similar. I do want to acknowledge though, that AstraZeneca is not approved in the United States. I know we might have some people here from other countries, which is another reason I wanted to mention it. Um, and it may be approved in the future. They are probably going to be seeking approval in the next month or so, but for now, just Johnson and Johnson is another possible candidate you have access to besides the two RNA vaccines. And these vaccines work pretty similar with a few differences that I want to highlight. So again, both of these vaccines are just focusing on the RNA for the spike protein. So they're missing all of the, the directions to make the rest of the virus. But what they've done is they convert that directions from RNA to DNA, and then they insert that information into a vector that's called an adenovirus. And that adenovirus is a virus that you're probably been exposed to before. It can cause the common cold, but this time that virus has been modified so that it can't make you sick and it can't replicate in your cells. All it's doing is acting as a delivery system to get those directions to make the spike protein inside of your cell. So the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines use that lipid bubble to get the directions in and the Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines use the adenovirus as the vector to get those directions into your cells. So then what will happen is if you get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, you again will get it in your upper arm and you have cells in that vicinity that will, the adenovirus will bind to and use to get inside. And then what will happen is that the spike protein DNA will be inserted into your cells. And then that DNA will be converted into RNA in your cell. And then the RNA will be converted into the spike protein. So this has just an extra step, whereas the RNA vaccines, you went from RNA right to protein. In these vaccines, you have the DNA directions. Those DNA directions are converted to RNA. 
and then the RNA is made into spike protein. But then from there, what happens in your immune system is exactly the same as what I just told you. Your immune system cells will recognize the cell, um, the spike protein on the cell surface, and it will then mount an immune response that will form those memory cells that will protect you from the real virus if you're exposed to it. The other vaccine I want to mention is called the Novavax vaccine, because I also, they are also likely to be um, seeking emergency use approval soon. And I wanted, since I don't know if I'll be able to talk to you guys again, I wanted to give you guys an understanding of how this vaccine works in case this is the one that you're offered. This vaccine is actually really cool. I think it's a really cool technology in addition to the RNA vaccine. So it makes me kind of geek out about it. But what they did was that they again took those directions to make the spike protein and made them into DNA. And then what they did is they inserted that directions to make the spike protein into a virus. It's called a bacliovirus. And that virus doesn't infect humans, it infects moth cells. And yeah, those little bugs that like fly at your house at night infects those. And what these researchers did at Novavax is that that virus will infect moth cells and turn the moth cells into a spike making factory. Because again, this vaccine is targeting that spike protein. So what will happen is that the virus will infect the moth cells and insert the directions to make that spike protein. The moth cells will then be making that spike protein. And then what the researchers do is that they harvest all of those spike proteins from the moth cells and they assemble them into nanoparticles. And then what ends up happening is that they purify out those nanoparticles and they combine them with something called a soap bark tree protein. And that sounds a little confusing. And the reason that they include this is because it helps stimulate your immune response because otherwise you don't get a strong enough response. So by having this other foreign protein plus the spike protein, it helps make sure that your body is actually making an immune response. So in this Novavax vaccine, what ends up happening is that you are, instead of having to go through RNA or DNA, you get injected with the spike proteins directly. And then your immune system, just like before, will recognize that those spike proteins don't belong and will mount an immune response that will protect you if you're exposed to the real pathogen, just like all of the other vaccines. Some of you may be wondering how they compare. So here is a chart that is very large and I apologize for that. I didn't know of a, a better way of doing this, but this chart is showing you all of the different possible vaccine candidates right now. The first three, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson are the only three currently being used. Novavax and AstraZeneca are likely gonna be seeking approval soon. Um, we'll see if they get approved. I expect that they might, but we'll see. But overall, all of these vaccines have been shown to protect people from getting COVID-19. And how well they work at preventing symptomatic disease varies among the different types of vaccines. But the really exciting part is that all of these vaccines help protect against the severe outcomes. So in patients who received these vaccines, none of them who ended up developing COVID-19 died, and they were also protected from being in the ICU on ventilators and other severe outcomes. I've, I also added a little bit of information in about the variants because I know a lot of people have concerns about how well these vaccines will work against the variants. And I want to reassure you that all of the vaccines that are currently being used, so Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, do still work to protect us against these new variants. It may decrease the effectiveness of preventing symptomatic disease a little bit, 
but it still is going to prevent you from getting severe outcomes and it's still going to improve outcomes overall. And it still lessens your chance of getting COVID-19. So then I just want to talk a little bit about some common questions. So I'm going to take questions from the audience as well, but I also know that a lot of people come to me with specific questions and I wanted to kind of get those questions out of the way so that you guys have, have, have time to ask me other questions that you may have. And I also wanted to address some common myths that I see circulating because there's a lot of misinformation about these vaccines. So the first thing that I want to mention is a lot of people come to me and ask me, well, which is the, va- is the best vaccine to get? And they want me to tell them. And this is a really hard question to answer. And I'm going to tell you why. And that's because the efficacy numbers that you see and you saw on that previous slide are hard to compare to each other. And that's because the trials were run at different times. So Moderna and Pfizer did their trials before there were a lot of variants around, whereas Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, Novavax, and AstraZeneca are doing their trials in different areas where there are a lot of variants prevalent. So it's really hard to compare those general efficacy numbers to each other. And I don't want people to get trapped in looking at those numbers and being like, I only want Pfizer and Moderna and passing up the opportunity to get another really great vaccine because all of these vaccines are really great and have been shown to be safe. And the other important thing is that when you're looking at the other metrics besides general efficacy against symptomatic disease, all of these decrease your risk of getting severe disease and your risk of dying if you get COVID-19, and they all protect you from contracting COVID-19. So ultimately, the best vaccine is going to be the one that you can get first, because if you refuse a vaccine because you want to wait for one you think is better, then that whole period of time while you're waiting, you're going to be vulnerable to a COVID-19 infection, and you don't know what your outcome of that infection could be. Some other people have a lot of questions about what's in the vaccines. And this is a very long list for each of these vaccines currently approved. I don't have access. They don't, um, Novavax and AstraZeneca don't release their ingredient list until they go up for FDA approval, which is why they're not here. But overall, I want to highlight the fact that they don't have any preservatives and they don't have any heavy metals because I know that is a common issue people have with vaccines. And overall, all of these ingredients are things that are used and a lot of other products that you come in contact with and including a lot of foods. And if you have more concerns about ingredients, I have a post on my blog that goes into all of these ingredients and what they're used for in other contexts in case that's an issue that you have questions about. Other people have a lot of questions about what are the, some of the common side effects. So some of the common side effects people report after getting these vaccines are going to be fatigue, headaches. Some people get joint pain, Some people get temporary vomiting, fever, muscle pain, and then some people will get soreness at the injection site or potentially even a rash at the injection site. And all of those things are normal. None of those things are concerning. They all last very short in time. They're very, usually they are gone within 24 to 48 hours. But when these side effects happen, a lot of times people think that those mean that they're getting sick, that the vaccine got them sick. And that's not true. Because what happens when you're sick? Well, when you're sick, your immune system is working. And that is what's happening when you're getting this vaccine. So a lot of the symptoms that you associate with being sick are symptoms that are occurring when you're sick because your immune system is working to clear that infection. So a vaccine is activating your immune system so that you can make those memory cells. So some people will have these side effects as a result of that. 
But I also want to reassure people who don't have side effects because some people are just lucky and don't have side effects after getting a vaccine. And this is true for all vaccines. And that does not mean that your immune system isn't working. So in trials, regardless of whether or not somebody reported side effects, their body still made those memory cells for the vaccine. So you don't have to worry about if you don't get a vac if you don't get side effects, that doesn't mean that your body isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. So the other thing I wanted to mention is that some people have concerns about the risk of anaphylaxis after the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, but overall, this is very rare. So the risk of this is about two to 11 in a million people. So it's very rare, but because it is a possible side effect, when you get, if you get offered the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine, what will happen is that you'll be asked to wait for 15 minutes after getting your vaccine so that you're on site in case an allergic reaction happens. But overall, this is very, very rare. Another common concern people have is relating to why the side effects are worse after getting the second vaccine. So Moderna and Pfizer are both a two dose vaccine. So you get one dose and then three to four weeks later, you get your second dose. And a lot of times people report that that second dose really causes a lot of side effects. And there's a reason for this. And that's because the first dose is getting your immune system ready. So I like to use the analogy of a door-to-door -door salesman. The first time a door-to-door -door salesman comes to your house to sell you something, you've never seen them before. So it's going to take you a while to realize they're at your door trying to sell you something. Once you do, you kick them out. And that first vaccine dose is doing the same thing. It's priming your immune system to recognize that spike protein as foreign. And then what will end up happening is that when you get that second dose, your immune system is geared up. It's just like if that door-to-door -door salesman comes back a second time, you recognize him, you know he's trying to sell you something and you kick him out as soon as you see him. And that's what happens for the vaccine when you get that second dose. Your immune system responds really strongly, which often will cause more side effects, because it recognizes that that spike protein doesn't belong. And that second dose is important for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. So please don't skip it. And that second dose is important because that's what causes your immune system. You'll see that this blue line, which is um, showing your immune response, that blue line is much higher after that second dose. And that's because it's making sure that your immune system is producing enough memory cells to protect you long-term. And that's why these vaccines need two doses to get that response. Johnson & Johnson was able to get that high response with just one dose, though they are testing a two-dose mechanism to see if that lasts longer. So eventually they may end up converting to two doses, but that is awaiting more for the trial. All right, so then the other thing I wanted to address, and this is the probably one of the other most common questions I get above even anything else I've talked about, is how did they make these vaccines so fast? A lot of people are worried that because the vaccines got to us so quickly, it means that they skipped safety steps and that that means that the vaccines are not safe and that we could end up having some scary long-term side effects. And I want to reassure you that no safety steps were skipped. The reason we got these vaccines so fast is because there's actually been tons and tons of research that's been done for decades and not on COVID-19, but on SARS. So SARS is a disease that's called caused by a virus that is very, very similar to SARS-CoV-2. And scientists have been trying to develop a SARS vaccine for years, and they made some amazing progress. But the reason why we don't have a SARS vaccine is because the SARS pandemic ended, 
right? There wasn't that many cases. It ended up not being as big of an issue as people were worried about. So the funding dried up. And that means that the researchers who were trying to develop um, these vaccines were still trying to do so, but it was going slowly because there wasn't as much of an urgent need. But what ended up happening is that as soon as scientists realized that there was this novel coronavirus and that it likely was going to be causing a global pandemic, they pivoted and changed all of their research from SARS to focusing on SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. And they were able to just tweak the vaccines that they had in development for SARS and modify them to be specific to COVID-19. So that means that they were able to use all of the extensive animal research and other research that they had done to develop these vaccines. The other thing that was allowed to happen because it was a global emergency is that they were able to do their different trial phases overlapping. So on the left, you'll see that in a normal timeline, phase one, phase two, and phase three of trials are done one after the other. You wait until phase one is done, then you go to phase two, then you go to phase three. But what ended up happening because of the pandemic was that they were allowed to do all of the same phases, but to overlap them. So this allowed it to occur more quickly. They also were able to submit data as they collected it instead of at the end. This allowed the regulatory bodies in the FDA to be able to look at the data as they were collecting it to make the process faster. The other thing they were able to do is they, they started to make these vaccines to produce them before they knew for sure that they would be able to be used. And they were able to take that risk because governments were saying, we're going to buy these vaccines and we're going to help fund this so that we can have a vaccine that will actually work. So none of the safety steps were skipped. We have a lot of data that shows that these vaccines are safe. And we got them quickly because all of a sudden, all of this focus was being pushed onto COVID-19. And this shows you how much we can do in the scientific community if there's enough funding and enough brain power focused on a specific problem. The other common thing that I hear some people are saying that they don't want to get a vaccine. They said that they don't need to get vaccinated because they're not worried about COVID-19 and it doesn't pr protect them from spreading it to others. And I want to say that that's true. Not true. This is not true. And this is definitely something that we now have great data. And we actually got more data yesterday that vaccines will protect you from being asymptomatic. So what this is showing you is that let's say you have a person who's infected with SARS-CoV-2. When that person is around other people, there are three things that can happen. One thing that can happen is this person in the red bubble, they become infected and develop symptoms of COVID-19. Then there's this person in the yellow bubble. This is somebody who becomes infected with COVID-19, but is asymptomatic. They don't show symptoms. So they don't know that they're infected and they can potentially go and spread it to other people. And then there's this person in the green. This is somebody who is exposed, but does not become infected. So if these three people were vaccinated, what we're now seeing is that most people, 90% of people who are vaccinated are in this green area. They do not become infected at all. So this means that not only are the vaccines protecting you from becoming symptomatic, but they're also protecting you from even getting infected. So this means that if you're exposed to someone with COVID-19, you're not gonna then go on and pass that virus on without realizing it because you're asymptomatic. So vaccines will not only protect you if you are infected with COVID-19, but they're also going to help decrease transmission 
to truly help us get out of this pandemic. All right, so then I'm almost done and I'm gonna open it up to questions in a moment, but I just wanna also mention this one other thing that I get. And this one other common thing that I hear is that vaccines are being pushed for profit and that pharmaceutical companies and other individuals are pushing vaccines, not because we need them to end the pandemic, but because they wanna make money. And I'm gonna tell you that that is definitively and completely wrong. And my friend, um, she's on Instagram as well. She's called, uh, her Instagram handle is Nina in the brain and she's fantastic. But she um, made these slides and told me I had permission to share them because I didn't have the time to do this research myself. All of her references, if you're curious, are available and I can share them with you. But she did a bunch of research and was able to quantify the cost of disease versus the cost of vaccines. And what does that mean? So overall, we know from a pharmaceutical and a health perspective that being sick pays the pharmaceutical companies and the hospitals more money because you end up, if you get sick with COVID-19 and you end up in the hospital, that's going to be an expensive bill. And this is true for any vaccine preventable illness, that the cost of the disease in terms of medications and hospital care and doctor care is in the order of $1.9 trillion dollars. Whereas the profit that people get from vaccines is minuscule compared to that amount. So if this was truly only a profit perspective, if pharmaceutical companies were only making vaccines for profit, that wouldn't make sense because they were, they would actually make more money by not making vaccines. And this is one of the reasons why the, there was a huge issue where in the early eighties, vaccine um, pharmaceutical companies wanted to stop making vaccines. And that was why the government try, had to try to incentivize pharmaceutical companies to make vaccines because it just isn't profitable for them compared to some of the other things that they can be focusing on. And then the other thing I wanna mention is a lot of other people also think that if they're young and healthy, they don't need to get a COVID-19 vaccine. I'm hoping that that asymptomatic data, the fact that we know a vaccine will also help decrease transmission will help people realize why a vaccine is important. But also I want to mention that young people do die from COVID-19. It's not just older, healthy, um, older, sick people who die. It's also young, healthy people who die. And ultimately we don't know what makes somebody susceptible for, to dying from COVID-19 versus somebody who survives. But even if you did get a mild COVID-19 infection and you do fine and you don't die and you don't end up in the hospital, that doesn't mean you're not going to have a profound health impact. We are now seeing that there are people who had very mild COVID-19 cases, maybe only a runny nose or a very mild disease, who are now getting long-term health issues. And these people are now being referred to as long COVID patients, or they've been renamed PASC, which stands for post-acute SARS-CoV-2 um, syndrome. And these are individuals who had mild disease who are now having significant health impacts. Some of these people have lost their jobs because they can't get out of bed. I know somebody who has four kids and can't get out of bed to take care of the four kids. And they all had mild disease. None of these people were hospitalized. So risking a COVID-19 infection is also risking having long-term health implications that we currently don't know how to fix. And a vaccine, because a vaccine prevents you from also decreases your chance of getting infected, will also decrease your chance of getting long COVID. So the bottom line 
is that all of these vaccines generate an immune response that results in memory cell formation. All have been shown to be effective at decreasing disease symptoms and severity, and all have been shown to be safe. So the best vaccine, the one that's going to help end the pandemic, the one that's going to help protect you from bad outcomes is going to be the vaccine that you're offered first. And with that, I'm happy to take questions. And if you have additional questions that you don't, we don't get to in this period of time, you can find my website here on the slide, or you can follow me on Instagram. I do a lot, a lot of science communication on Instagram under the handle science with Liz. And with that, I'm happy to take questions. That was really great. Thank you. We do have a couple of questions. I'm going to start with, I'm going to go in a little bit, not in the order they came in. Could you explain anaphylaxis, please? You remember yeah. you said that you have to wait after you get the shot. Yes. So, um, some people, there is a allergic reaction that people can get, which is called anaphylaxis and people can have this to bee stings or to peanut butter or to other allergies. And this is where a person's airway closes. So there were some people who reported this after getting vaccinated, their airway started to close. And then the treatment for that is to have epinephrine, which is a medication that they inject into you to stop the allergic reaction. Now, because we do see this after vaccination, that's why we have people be monitored because it usually occurs within 15 minutes. But most of the people who had it, 80% of the people who had anaphylaxis after getting the vaccine were people who had had it before. So people who have to have to carry an EpiPen because they're allergic to bees and those sorts of things. Okay. Um, why does it take two weeks for the vaccine to take full effect? And does the length of that time depend on the size of the person? Oh yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't depend on the size. It depends on the immune system cells. So those memory cells take about two weeks to form just based on how they develop in your body. And that's why it takes two weeks after your final dose to be fully protected. And that's why you're not recommended to gather with people who were vaccinated until after two weeks, because your immune system takes those two weeks to make all of those cells. This will be piece of cake. Can you explain herd immunity? Yes. So <laughs> herd immunity is when enough of the population have immunity that the disease stops being spread. So what happens is in a population like what we're currently seeing, where nobody has immunity, we see that the cases are crazy. Millions and millions of people worldwide have been infected with this virus because we have no prior immunity to it. But the vaccines will train your immune system to prevent infections, and that will help stop the spread. But you need about 70 to 75 to 80 percent. There's a range we're not quite sure yet of the population to have that immunity before we start to no longer see a lot of spread. So it's generally 70 to 80 percent. And that just it I, depends on the virus. OK, but yep. the but the estimates <clears throat> for this virus are 70 to 80. OK. I believe the question is saying that Dr. Fauci showed anatomical slides that suggest permanent damage is possibly likely if you get COVID. Have you heard that? Yes. And that's true. I mean, I I'm, I'm not sure. We have seen that we don't, the problem is we don't, it's a new virus, right? We don't know how long these things will potentially last. We are seeing that in <clears throat> even kids who get asymptomatic COVID that they will have inflammation of their blood vessels afterwards. And we don't know how long that lasts. We don't know if it's a significant issue. They're figuring that out right now. They're also seeing, they're now recommending that if an athlete gets COVID-19, that before they resume athletics, they go for a heart scan because we do see some people have 
heart inflammation and other significant changes that could just be temporary, but we also don't know that. Um, so we are seeing significant impacts on different tissues after even a mild COVID infection, which is why preventing even a mild case of COVID is so important. Why do vaccinated people need to wear masks? So the most, the biggest reason for this is because we were waiting for more and more data to show that there wasn't a risk for a vaccinated person to be asymptomatic and not realize that they were potentially infected with COVID-19 uh, so with, with the virus and because the problem is if you're asymptomatic, you could be walking around passing on the virus without realizing it. We're getting increasing data that that is unlikely to happen, but that chance is not zero. We were seeing in the data released yesterday that about 90% of people were protected from having asymptomatic COVID after a vaccine. That means there's still a 10% chance somebody could be walking around after getting vaccinated and be contagious if they're exposed. So because we don't have enough people vaccinated yet, we don't even want to have that 10% chance of passing it on to unvaccinated people. Because again, we know that COVID can have severe impacts. So while we wait for more people to be vaccinated, you're going to be wearing your mask to protect others in case you are in that very rare grouping that could be, can, um, could be contagious without having symptoms. We know that's increasingly unlikely, but until more people are vaccinated, we want to protect everybody when you're out in public. So this is a combination of understanding herd immunity and the fact that we have a brand new virus that people are trying to figure out. Yes. Okay. If you have had an allergic or anaphylactic reaction to a medication or other vaccine or anything like that, should you not have a COVID vaccine? So the current recommendation is if you have, if you have a known allergy to a molecule called polyethylene glycol, that's a lipid molecule that's in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, then you should not get Pfizer or Moderna, but you could get Johnson and Johnson. If you have just a general allergy to other medications, you can still get Moderna and Pfizer. What they will do is they will monitor you for 30 minutes instead of 15 minutes. Now uh, there's a lull in the question, so I'm going to ask some of mine. Why the spike protein in particular? Yeah, so the spike protein is the from an immune system perspective, it's the easiest part of the virus for your immune system to recognize because it sticks outside of the virus as, as like a little crown. And that's actually why coronaviruses are called coronaviruses because corona is a word for a crown. And it they do, those spikes look like little crowns when you look at them under a microscope. And that part of the virus is just the easiest part of the virus for your immune system to recognize. So that's why they did it, because it's highly effective at eliciting that immune response. Other vaccine companies are looking at creating vaccines against other parts of the virus. They just haven't been effective yet. But maybe we will get one eventually. I'm just this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but isn't that also where they've seen most of the uh, mutations and variations are in the spike protein? Yes. Yes. I, it just I mean, that's why people are kind of freaking out a little bit about the mutations, right? So that's, that was why I wanted to ask. It's, it's a, it's a compromise. that makes sense of why you would pick that, I guess. Yes. But they are looking into others. The adenoid virus technique, is that used that that's been used for other vaccinations besides COVID, correct? Um, it was the only other vaccine it's been approved for is Ebola this past summer. Oh, so that's pretty new too. Mm-hmm. But we now have an Ebola vaccine that uses a technology as well. Okay. What is the deal with using a moth cell 
for the Novavax? Like why moths? Do you have any idea? I think because they wanted to get a lot, some individuals have ethical concerns around using human cell lines. Um, the mRNA vaccines don't use any human cell lines at any stage of development. Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca did use a uh, fetal cell line for early development. Um, and there are some individuals have ethical issues with that. So I think Novavax wanted to find a cell line that they could get a lot of cells from and not have any of those issues. Is it really that easy to get that many cells? I never would have thought, but I mean, <laughs> I think it's super cool and their data looks really great. They've released, they released interim data and it looks amazing. So I just, I had no idea. Okay. Yeah. Um, how good are the other vaccines being made around the world and serving other countries? Do you have any information on that? So the, the main ones being used are AstraZeneca is being used in a lot of places and that works well. And then there is the Sputnik vaccine from Russia. And that is very similar to the Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca. It uses an adenovirus as a vector and that appears to work really well. We haven't seen a lot of data yet. So I don't, I don't know tons about it, but it seems to work really well. Um, and I don't know much about the China, the one that China developed because um, it isn't widely used to my knowledge access to vaccines globally has been very bad. Yeah. Unfortunately, developed countries are hoarding vaccines. And for the pandemic to truly end, we need to distribute vaccines globally. Can you elaborate more on the DNA nucleotide insertion in the nucleus and what happens compared to the messenger RNA in the cytosol? So for the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines, yeah, the DNA directions gets inserted into the nucleus because that's where the mRNA is made because you need to make the mRNA directions and then that goes into the cytoplasm. But once it's in the cytoplasm, it's exactly the same as the mRNA vaccine. There's no difference. The okay. RNA that's made is the same. They just, they just decided to Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca are just using that adenovirus to get the directions in that way. And the mRNA vaccines are just giving you directly mRNA. The RNA is so unstable that I think Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca likely thought that it wasn't what they wanted to pursue because it is a harder technology to get working, but it works, which is great. So is the fragility of the messenger RNA one of the reasons that those shots, those vaccines have to be kept either super, super cold or pretty cold? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, cause heat, uh, I mean, RNA, when we work with RNA in the lab, cause I've, I work with RNA quite a bit. If we look at it the wrong way, I swear it like dissolves. <laughs> so the, so definitely like it, it's gone. It sticks around literally long enough to make that immune response. And then it's gone. Good to know. Um, would it be risky to work in a vaccine clinic? I work in a vaccine. I've worked in a vaccine clinic since the beginning of February and I love it. One of the benefits is that if they have extra doses at the end of the day, they do vaccinate volunteers according to age. So they go from oldest to youngest uh, because they recognize that people who are volunteering are putting themselves at risk by being in the community around potentially people who have COVID and don't realize it. Um, but that being said, I felt very safe. I wore two masks and you are required to wear eye protection. So usually people also wear a face shield and they mandate distance. So I felt very safe overall, but I, that being said, I wouldn't recommend somebody do it if they're high risk. 
unless they're vaccinated. If somebody's been vaccinated, great. But if you are unvaccinated and high risk, I would hold off until you get vaccinated. And would you go over what high risk is? Yeah. Again? So high risk is predominantly individuals who are older. Age is the most significant risk factor for severe COVID. Um, but then also we're seeing people who have Down syndrome are significantly more at risk. People who have other immune compromise, so HIV or on chemotherapy or on immunosuppressants. Asthma does not appear to be a risk factor. They really looked because they thought it would be, but they didn't see as long as the person's asthma is not like uncontrolled, but if they are able to function, there wasn't a risk factor. Um, but the biggest risk factor is age and then things that impair the immune response. So diabetes is also considered a risk factor as well. Okay. Uh, I don't see any other questions right now. I would like to throw in my two cents about uh, the value of basic research. So not just the, the vaccines that they were working on with regards to SARS, but also with um, just kind of basic research and how vaccines work. So the basic research that, that has made the, actually both vaccines, the ad, uh, I, I can't pronounce it, the adenovirus and the mRNA is really vital. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm as prone as anybody else is to say, but what can you do with that when people tell me what their, what their PhD research is or otherwise? And the answer is sometimes we don't know until we get into a situation like this. And then all of a sudden we do know what we can do with it. I'm going to do yeah. a super quick plug here. So this, this, uh, this session is the very last of our February, March session, sorry. Um, but we are hoping to do some more pop-up events. Uh, we are also opening, we have some merchandise coming in, in April that we're going to have, you can show off how much you love Maine Science. Uh, we'll have a store up online. Maine Science, uh, for, for those of you who have not been to a science festival, Maine is world-leading in, in so many areas I've lost track. We started with some main, you know, in January with Maine in space and we, we had uh, offshore wind and then all five sessions in March uh, because March is in fact the world's longest month. Uh, we're all about COVID and really extraordinary stuff happening with uh, Maine and COVID and science in general. So we'll be trying to highlight those. Elizabeth, I think uh, before we jumped on and let everybody else on, we were, we were talking to each other about vaccinations and uh, who should get it. And uh, we came to the conclusion that everybody should get it the second they're eligible. Um, yes. The wait times are not terrible. Yes. Um, I, will, I will tell you, eight-year-old me cannot believe how excited 52-year-old me was to get a shot. And it was painless and it was really great. And I, the only way we're going to stop this is through uh, widespread vaccination so that we can get everybody else. So I know you've had an experience yes. with that and you would have no hesitation recommending any of these vaccines, right? Nope. I have been vaccinated myself as well. Uh, my husband will be next in line as soon as he's eligible. My son will be vaccinated as soon as he's eligible. He's only two. So we have a long way to wait for him. Unfortunately, <laughs> they're still, they're just starting trials on his group now, but I, I recommend vaccines to everybody because honestly I have, as I said, I have a friend, I have a friend who is suffering from long COVID and she was, she had a really mild case of COVID and you wouldn't have thought anything of it. Right. And now she can't get out of bed and she's having long, she's has heart issues and her life is completely changed. She spent thousands and thousands of dollars trying to find out what to do. And no one really knows because it, no one understands the long-term effects of COVID yet. And seeing somebody have to go through that 
is like, I don't want anyone else I know or don't know. I don't want anyone else to have to suffer from that when there's an option to prevent it. Well, my thanks to you and to all of the scientists and presenters we've had. Um, this is a, it's a lot of work to have um, someone go outside of their actual work to do this. So <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, I think parents and educators in particular have carried the, and, and healthcare providers and first responders have had the whole world on their backs for the last year. Uh, so I'm grateful for the time that you've given us. To everybody who's still listening, please go out and get your vaccine as soon as you can. If you're able to volunteer, please do so that we can get everybody else vaccinated. In Maine in particular, they're really, really heavy, sorry, really relying on uh, volunteers to get those clinics done and encourage everybody else, keep wearing your mask, get a vaccine, get a Daffy Duck Band-Aid and call it good. So <laughs> Well, thanks thank you very for much. having me. Thank yep. you. Maine Science Festival has received sponsorship support for this bonus Maine Science Podcast Forum episode from the Bioscience Association of Maine, the Jackson Laboratory, and Maine Public. Maine Science Podcast was recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discover Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I received production support from Miranda Bouchard and social media support from Next Media. The variation on the Discover Main theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.